The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And so let's start reading in chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give him the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out on the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to a land of Gennesaret, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Well, this is one of those stories where there's a lot going on and there are a lot of transitions and a lot of things happening, all dealing with very difficult situations. In the midst of great difficulty, we see the death of John, who is Jesus' brother-in-law and good friend and precursor and the one who prepared Jesus for his public ministry. 
We see a mighty storm in a city full of sick people. We see hungry stomachs of crowds of poor people coming, desiring something to eat. And we see Jesus' ability in the midst of it all to maintain this loving composure with his people. This covers a lot of different situations, I know, uh, where faith is difficult for those who some are afraid, those who are in need of just practical provisions, and those who are tired, those who are grieving, those who may be sick. All things that we can, can that, that resonate with us. And this chapter of scripture is just riddled with difficulty like this. Everything is going wrong. Look at some of the difficulty. It starts out with Jesus, his cousin and forerunner to his ministry, being beheaded, being murdered. Then we see the storm and then the hungry people and a town full of sick people. And verse 3 to 12 is this flashback of, of John, of his beheading. I want you to look at just this lonely, this lonely verse in verse 13 again. Now when Jesus heard this, when he heard this story of his cousin being murdered, when he heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, surely you've had things go on in your life that have been difficult, that have really tried you, that have really uh, made your spirit weak. Maybe you're going through that now. And just look at this lonely verse. Have you ever felt that way? He just wanted to be alone. He just wanted to mourn. He wanted to grieve the loss of his friend, to think and to be with his thoughts. Jesus knows what it is like to be you. He knows what it's like to feel that way. He knows what it's like to feel those feelings that you just want to get away, that you just want to be alone, that you just can't take it anymore. And when he wants to, alone, wants to be alone, it seems like it's at those times when people want to be with him the most. Jesus is at the height of his public popularity, and when he wants to withdraw, when he wants to get to a place alone to be with his thoughts and to pray, it's then people are looking for him, and he can't get away from the crowds. Crowds continue to swarm Jesus he, he can't escape them. He can't, can't escape the noise of his life and, and the, the need that people have of him. People always want something from him. They always need something. But this is what Jesus does. He looks upon the crowds and he has compassion. You know, when you, when you experience grief, when you experience struggle and difficulty in your life, maybe emotional pain, and, and you just desire physical and emotional solitude, you just want to be alone and your phone rings, or there's a knock on the door, or you, there's this email ding on your phone, or there's a text message that reminds you that you have a commitment that evening, and you may not say it out loud, but everything inside of you just screams, will people just leave me alone? You ever felt that way? Well, this is what Jesus desires, and when people come to him, his response is compassion, full of compassion. He looks upon the crowns, and he loves them. Even when he's seeking to escape, he sees the crowds and he, he breaks for them. He has compassion on them. That is what he is like. And I want to start out this time of looking at what, is, what does it look like to have faith in difficult times and in difficult places, just looking at Jesus, that he understands what it is like to feel those feelings. But this is what he is like. He is one who listens to our needs and he cares for us. He is one who sees us in our brokenness and has compassion on us. He cares for them. He expresses concern, and he does something about it. That's what Jesus is like. And so in that way, he's not like us. And what follows are three miracles, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, 
the miracle of Jesus walking on the water and calming the storm, and the miracle of people being healed in what appears to be just a city full of sick people. Matthew intends for us to see this, this, um, these miraculous events unfolding. Some, of, some have tried to see these events in a different way, that not, not miracles. Maybe they took the, the five loaves of bread and it was like a communion service where they all broke it into really small pieces of bread for everybody. And some would believe that. And see, see, it was just a communion service. So when, when the Bible says that they were satisfied, they were satisfied with, it was more of a metaphorical, like they, they enjoyed the fellowship so much, they were satisfied by just the good fellowship of God's people. Or maybe some of you think that the water of the sea was so shallow at the time that it appeared Jesus was walking on the water, but really he was walking on land. It just looked that way. But Matthew intends so much to have these one right after another to show us that there's something supernatural going on, that God is acting in a way to address our needs, to show us something about himself and about us that we need to see. Clearly, this isn't what's happening. What's happening is that He's feeding people. He's feeding thousands of people. It says that he fed 5,000, but that's only 5,000 men. It's the, only, it's the only miracle ever recorded of Jesus' miracles recorded by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what, what should we know about these things? Well, on one hand, the, we see the physical reality of these miracles. You have a physical miracle, a literal multiplying of, of five loaves of bread and two fish to feed thousands of people, up to 20,000 people. It says 5,000 men plus women and children. Think of McHale Center. Think of McHale Center fully packed, not a single seat unoccupied. And 5,000 people in the parking garage waiting to get in. That's how many people were fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. This is proof of Jesus' power, his miraculous, supernatural power over the material world in which we live, in, in which we struggle and have difficulty. The world in which we live today, and we have trouble and problems of all kinds, we, we should know something about Jesus, that he has miraculous power. Second miracle is closely tied to the first, to reveal again this, this supernatural power of Jesus, not only over the material world, but now the, the natural world. The physical world, the natural world, the waves and the sea, power over the waves and the sea and, and the wind. These are not inexperienced sailors. Just a question for you to think about. How scary do the waves and the wind have to be for sailors who have spent their entire life on the water to be terrified? How bad does it have to be for people who have spent their whole life on the water to think that they're going to die? Pretty bad. These weren't novices. These weren't kids. These were experienced fishermen who have spent their whole lives on the water. And so, yes, on one hand, this is meant to show us what Jesus can do, that he's powerful, that he can heal people just if they touch the edge of his clothes, that he could walk on water, that he can multiply food to feed the hungry. But, but few miracles are recorded just for that reason alone. Matthew's not telling us these things just so that we can know that Jesus is somehow, that he is God, that he is divine, that he's powerful. Of course it is that, but it's more than that. It does have a symbolic value to, to it, to teach the disciples to see something that they might not see. The spiritual reality of these miracles, while, while eating the bread and the fish, it's no lavish banquet. I mean, there wasn't even wine at this dinner. It symbolizes this satisfaction in Christ. It symbolizes the satisfaction of Christ for the craving of our soul. John records this situation where Jesus fed the 5,000 and shortly afterwards... He explains it to them. He talks with them. 
He says to the crowd something that we say every single Sunday here at church after when we take the supper together. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is using this physical, historical event, this real thing that happened, to point to a greater spiritual reality that he provides, that he encourages, that he is our satisfaction. Christians who follow Jesus still eat, right? Christians who believe in Jesus still get thirsty. So Jesus wasn't being a liar by saying, hey, we believe in you, we've come to you, and yet we're still hungry, we still thirst. Jesus' miracles are pointing to a greater, deeper reality. Jesus is meaning to tell us something so good about himself, how communion with him satisfies. It satisfies our soul in such a way that, that nothing else can. How trusting in him provides a foretaste of this forever satisfaction with Jesus that this world can't offer, that the material things or the natural things can't offer. Why does Matthew bring up these miracles like he does? There's three in a row like this. What's the point? You've heard this story. You've heard these stories before. If you've spent any time in the church or in Sunday school as a child, you've heard these stories. I mean, even if you haven't been in church, you know these stories. These are some of the most popular. I mean, you even use them in secular contexts. Hey, look at that guy. Here he comes. He thinks he walks on water. You know, you, use, you know of these stories. You know that Jesus walked on water. You know of the story of him multiplying the, the, for the thousands. You know of him healing people just by his mere presence or by a single word or even a command. You know these things. Why waste ink on these miracles? His purpose is not just to tell us history. He wants us to see something about Jesus and something about ourselves so that when we face difficulty, we would know how to be satisfied, that the difficulty will not get the last word, that we would not be ruled by it, but we'd be ruled by something else, a relationship with him. So when it comes to understanding the, the central narrative of uh, the central story, the central meaning of, of a narrative, uh, many scholars would say, if you want to know the, the central meaning of a story, go to where people are talking. Look at where people are talking. Look at where the dialogue is happening in the Bible. And so Jesus doesn't say much in this whole chapter, but I want you to see just the few sentences that he does say. And I want to put those up there. Look at the things that he, just, he does say, and maybe there's a theme that pops out. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Bring them here to me. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Come. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Some of the most famous miracles that have ever been recorded of Jesus, and he doesn't say much, but what he does say tells us a pretty amazing story about who he is and something about who we are and what we should do in times of difficulty. At the center of it all is this difficulty, is a picture of Jesus. Can you see it? Can you see this picture of Jesus that is emerging here? What kind of God he is like? What kind of person he is like? What kind of a God of compassion he is and concern and ability to do something? And what he invites us into, he is petitioning us and, and inviting every single one of us to come to him, to see him for who he truly is, to take our eyes off of our trouble and to look to him. And he desires to satisfy us, to take care of us. It's an invitation to believe in him more deeply. He has an agenda with all of these miracles. They are to, to bring us into a deeper belief, a deeper faith in who he is. He was testing his disciples when his disciples brought him the small lunch. And John records that, that, Jesus, that we even know, that John tells us he did this in order to test them. As if Jesus is saying, 
Whatever will we do with all these people and this little food? And Jesus is knowing, how much do they believe that I can provide? He was testing Peter when he came out on the sea. Testing Peter, will you trust in me? Will you look to me? Will you take your eyes off of your trouble and keep your eyes focused on me? He was testing the people of Gennesaret when he healed them. Would they reach out and take hold of his cloak? Would they reach out and touch him, knowing that he was powerful even over their sickness? The test for us is to see, and for them, the test is to see, will we take our eyes off of our trouble, and will we live by faith? That's the test. Will we be able to live by faith and not merely by sight? Will we live our lives only by what we can see in our life and the circumstances that are happening in our life and define God's ability based on what we would do if we were put in that situation? Or will we live by faith in trusting in a God who is Lord over all? That's the test. Will we look to our natural means? So when you were put in a place of real difficulty and sadness, will you look to your natural means and say, I can't overcome this on my own. God, there must be no help. Are you looking to your own physical ability, your own emotional ability, your character, your endurance through a certain pain? Or are you walking by faith in who Jesus is and what he has said to you? That's the test for every single one of us. Will you look beyond what you can see? That's what faith is. Faith is the ability to see what we can't see. I know that is the most frustrating definition ever, but it is true. Faith is being able to see what you can't see. Well, how can you see what you can't see? takes faith. Can you look in faith to what Jesus is doing in your life? That's the question for you. What's going on right now or what's coming up or what's, what you're carrying forward in, from your past? Can you look in faith to what Jesus is doing in your life? Faith is the ability to see what we can't see. Hebrews 11 tells us this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is the ability to see beyond our current focus, our current vision to what God has promised and embracing it as, as true. Consider the difficulty in your present life. Jesus is inviting you to look beyond it and look in faith to Christ. This doesn't mean that if you have faith en enough that you will be spared from difficulty. It doesn't mean that if you have faith enough that you'll be spared from physical sickness, that you'll be cured of any illness. For certainly this isn't the case for God's people all through Scripture. Because it seems that those who had the most face, faith actually faced the worst difficulty. This also doesn't mean that our physical comfort is unimportant to Jesus. You see, there's two sides of this. One is if you have enough faith, you won't have difficulty in your life. The other side is, of it is your material world and the things going on doesn't matter, just trust in Jesus. Both of those are untrue. He doesn't come teaching, be hungry less. But he sees hungry people and he actually feeds them. He takes care of their physical bodies. He doesn't say, be uncomfortable less, but he comes and satisfies. He, he calms their fears on the sea. He doesn't say, be sick less. If you were just a better Christian, you wouldn't be sick, but he recognizes their sickness and he cares for them and he heals them. Jesus is showing us in all these miracles that not only is he powerful enough over all of it, but that he actually cares about your physical, emotional, relational well-being. Those things are important to him. And so it's okay if they're important to you. But he does say, look at me more. Focus on me more. Faith, in one sense, is a gift from God. It's something that is not earned. It's something that he does give to us. And faith, in another sense, is a practice. It's something that we, that we feed, that we nurture, that we grow in, that we fill up our faith. 
a practice of taking hold of God who has taken hold of us. It's a lifelong pursuit of God. It's a lifelong practice of keeping our eyes focused on him, a failure that Peter had on the boat. It's a practice that Jesus even had to endure himself, to retreat to the mountains, to find a space to pray and to rest his mind and his heart on his Father who would comfort him and care for him and strengthen him in his trials. We see Jesus going up to the mountains and getting away from people often. We see him going into his so-called prayer closet to just be with his Father, to grow in faith. And so faith dwells on three things that I want to see as we look through this passage and for application for us. The first thing is that, that Jesus has personal knowledge of our difficulty. This faith, this belief that Jesus actually knows what's going on with you. I came across this phrase this week, and I'll be honest, it really it startled me for a moment. It, it did something different in me. And here's the phrase, and I want to test it out on you. Jesus is human. Well, of course he is, right? But, but Jesus is human. And I don't know why, but I haven't heard it like that before. Because usually when we talk about the, the humanity of Christ, we say Jesus was a man. But even how we say the word man, we say it in kind of really holy sense. Jesus was both God and man. As if it was some kind of weird kind of man. Jesus was man. Well, yes, he was a man. He was just like us. But Jesus was human. And I know it's saying the same thing, but, I, but it did something different for me. He is human. Can you imagine Jesus as a young boy? Can you imagine him in the temple at a prayer service like we had this morning, him fidgeting and just, oh my gosh. He did that. Can you imagine him getting restless and wanting to play and going out to be with the younger children? Could you imagine him getting sick and scraping his knee and crying out for his mom? Can you imagine him throwing up on their favorite tunic? <laughs> Jesus was human. Can you imagine Jesus just hearing that his best friend was beheaded? Can you imagine what a human would do after hearing that? Well, God is in control. He went to the mountains to be alone. Can you imagine him as a friend hearing that his best friend was just killed? Jesus himself succumbed to the effects of a broken world like hunger and sorrow and illness. There was a time when Jesus couldn't read or write or speak. There was a time he could not go to the bathroom by himself. There was a time he couldn't clothe himself. There was a time when he was human. And he still is. There was a time when his heart ached and it broke. And when he was sad by what was happening in the world. Can you imagine him as a human? Not just as the God-man, but as a human now, I'm not trying to separate the two things. I'm not trying to separate his, his God, his divinity from his humanity, but I want to see he was human. He knows. He has personal knowledge of your difficulty because he experienced every range of human emotion, the entire range of, of the human reality. He experienced it. He personally knows what you're going through because he has personally experienced it in every way, every relational pain, every worldly temptation, and every human reality. This is what the Bible tells us. And so we have a God who knows us and cares for us. And so the feelings or utterances from a heart that says, God, you just don't know. 
You're in your lofty tower. You're in heaven. Things are going great for you. You don't know what it's like to be me. And then we read a story like this, and we see, we see a human. We see a man and how he acts when he hears his friend was killed. So he knows. He has personal knowledge. And he made you. He knows your form. He knows your shape. He knows how your mind thinks, not from a distance, but because he took on human flesh. He became us so that we, he could redeem us from, from that brokenness. He knows. And it takes faith to know that. It takes faith to know that, Jesus, you have personal knowledge of what I'm feeling right now. Oh, Jesus wasn't ever married. He doesn't know what it's like to be married. You know, he calls his church his bride. Oh, he knows what it's like to be married. And he knows what it's like to have a spouse that doesn't care, that doesn't listen. He knows what it's like to have a spouse that is, is adulterous. He knows what it's like to have a spouse that is careless, who is indifferent to his love. And so it takes faith to know that he personally knows us. It takes faith as well, and we look through this passage, that Jesus has a deep compassion for our cares. Not only does he know what's going on, but he actually cares for what is going on. He has compassion for us. He has compassion on the tired and the hungry and the weary and the depressed and the anxious and the sick and the lonely and the, and the afraid. The crowd, the word the crowd, it's mentioned four times in this chapter. The annoying crowd. That's how I take it. <laughs> Just the, the crowd. It's this ominous burden. It is not like a good crowd. It is a bad crowd. It's a crowd of ministry burden. And Jesus looks upon it, and he has compassion. When I'm interrupted in my busy, important work, compassion is not the first thing that comes to my mind, and I don't think it's yours either. When you're in the rhythm of your work or your play, and you're interrupted by the crowd, compassion, I don't think, is probably the first thing that comes to mind. Frustration is a better word. Jesus knows what you're going through, and he cares. His heart goes out to you. His hand reaches out to you to give you comfort, to free you from the burden. But unlike a good friend who only knows and cares, Jesus can actually do something about it. It takes faith to know that not only does he know about us and he cares for us, but Jesus has the power to see us through it. It's our final thing. The one who governs all things, and sustains all things, and rules over all things, has complete power over all things. This is a great little apologetic. This chapter is a great little apologetic, a great little teaching on the sovereignty of God. A great little teaching on what does God have power over. Just make a list of the things that Jesus is doing in this chapter. And I don't mean just the miracles, that, that but more. There's more that's going on. It says that he sends the disciples away. This word, send, he doesn't say, guys, would you please, please leave? It's almost like Jesus sends them away. He forces them to go. He controls their behavior so much that they go and get into a boat and spend six hours on the sea while it's raging. He sits people down. He multiplies the food. He calms the storm. He heals the sick. What does Jesus have power over? Complete power. Over the physical world, the supernatural world, the natural world, the emotional world, the relational world. He's sovereign over all. The point of all that is to, the point of that is to have this deep contemplation on Christ. Matthew is, is, is meaning to show us this so that we would just think about Jesus and what he can do. 
And as we observe Jesus to, we, and see him for who he is, that we would believe in him. And, as, and in believing in him, we would worship him. And in worshiping him, we would have satisfaction for our hearts in any difficulty that we're faced. Because it's not the size of our faith, it's the object of our faith. Peter's faith was little, this teaches us, but not because he didn't know enough. It was little because he took his eyes off of Jesus. It was not little in the sense that he needed more, but he took his eyes off of the object of his faith. His object was on his ability, on the integrity of the ocean, on his ability to maintain composure. And he took his eyes off of Jesus. According to the Bible, there's no question that God sovereignly ordains trials in our lives at various points in order to reveal his character and nature to us in ways that by going through those things, we would learn things about him and grow in our faith that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. There's no doubt about it that God sovereignly ordains things for us so that we can know him more. And in the middle of the storm, the presence of Christ becomes all the more real. This is a truth that Jesus will continue to reiterate through the Gospel of Matthew. This truth of him that he'll show us over and over again. And what is that truth? That he's with us. That he's actually with us. That he cares for you. That there's nowhere you can go outside of his concern or outside of his reach to do something about it. And so wherever you are, you are where he desires you to be. We see these principles no clearer than at the cross where Jesus died. It is there where we see this, the absolute worst human reality, the absolute worst experience for a human to go through. Jesus is going through it. He's being betrayed. He's being mocked and beaten and humiliated. He is suffering the pain of torture and eventual death. And it is here where he has compassion on us. By identifying with us, do you see how he identifies with us? He actually takes on human flesh, that God does not just see us from a distance, but he is Emmanuel, God with us. He becomes incarnate in the flesh. He doesn't just identify with our sin. He becomes our sin and experiences what we should have experienced. He empties himself of his glory, of the privilege of being God. He lays it aside. He lays aside that privilege and pleasure. But not only does he lay it aside, he becomes our sin. He clothes himself with our unrighteousness. One of the most unreasonable things to say as we look at the cross is say, God, you just don't know what I'm going through. You don't know the pain I feel. It is there on the cross where the power defeats our greatest enemy, which is sin and death itself and alienation from God. Follower of Jesus, Christian, I just want to speak to you for a moment. The best thing that you have going for you is not that you have a life of privilege or comfort. The best thing that you have going for you is that you have a life that is free from the burden and curse of sin, and your life is hidden in Christ. That is the best thing you have going for you. The greatest thing you have is freedom from the struggle and guilt of sin and knowing that you now have a relationship with Jesus through faith, who knows your human struggle, who has, who has defeated sin in you, that has prepared a place for you, that is free from the struggle forever, 
and he promised to do everything he says he will do. That is the best thing you have going for you. But often we make the best thing going for us is a life of circumstance that is filled with as little difficulty as possible. The purpose of all these miracles is to bring the gospel down to our daily life, to our daily struggle, to our daily reality, to take off the fear of, of difficulty because Christ has calmed the storm and the winds. He's calmed our worst fears by defeating sin and the devil. Because God looks upon us and not on the basis of our record or our character or our endurance or stamina, but on the perfect record of Jesus. Bringing the gospel to your reality, to your today, whatever difficulty you're going through, that's the purpose of this chapter, to see Jesus, to see us, and to look at him in light of all that we know. We can come to him at any time, and he will have compassion on us. It is okay to be the crowd, that annoying crowd. He is a good father who listens to us when we whine. He is a good father who comes to him with unreasonable questions. He is a good father who cries out when we are hungry, when we're spiritually sick, when we're physically struggling, when we are hurt by a relationship. And how, do, how will he treat us? He will have compassion on us. Why? Well, given these things, why on earth would we ever have a legitimate reason? Why, given all these things, do we have any legitimate reason to lack any confidence in God and what he's going to do? that he knows us, that he has compassion on us, he has power over anything. I'm sorry to tell you that none of you have an excuse, a legitimate excuse to lack confidence in God in the midst of your difficulty. Is there any material need that you have? Is there any relational grief? Is there any physical struggle? Is there any emotional burden? Do you believe that God knows those things, that he cares for you, and he's orchestrating the events of your life so that you would be thrust into a deeper relationship with him? That's his point. Is there any wind strong enough in your life that would give you reason to doubt that God doesn't care, that he doesn't know, and he's not in this? There's no reason. We should think deeply on who Jesus is and what he has done. And just a, just a helpful comment, a helpful side comment on how Jesus pursued his father in the midst of difficulty. What was Jesus doing when trouble strikes? Well, he's retreating to be alone. He's going into that quiet place to get away from people. This shows us a great biblical apologetic that there's no such thing as a spiritually mature extrovert. I'm just kidding, guys. That was a joke. Man, you guys really took that. You're like... I'm on to you, extroverts, okay? That's not what that means. I was just kidding. Sorry, we were in a deep moment. I made a joke. Right? wasn't effective. But this is what it shows us. It shows us the importance of a purposeful pursuit of God in our quiet life. Quiet life. Tell me what that is again. Quiet life. Jesus had every excuse to not live a quiet life. At the height of his popularity seems like that's when Jesus was going away the most. At least that's what we see. We see him going away, spending days probably to get to the top of a mountain without food, without water, to be alone. Solitude with God. Solitude with God. Now, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? Solitude with God. A paradox, really. Solitude with God. It's like the Lone Ranger had Tonto, right? The, the ranger who was alone had a sidekick. Solitude with God. 
It means that when we are alone, you with me? It means when we are alone, we are never alone. It means when we are alone with God, we are never alone. When we are alone with God in our troubles, we are never truly alone. Verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. By himself, he was there alone. But he was never really alone. He went up to pray. He was with his father. He was having loving fellowship with his father who cared for him, who knew what he was going through, who cared for him, and was ordaining each and every step, even the steps that led him to the cross. We know this. We know that the cross was God's plan from eternity past. We know that the cross was not something that happened to Jesus, but something that Jesus gave, that he endured out of his own will. That he, with joy, endured the cross. That no one took his life, but he gave it up willingly. That this was the cup that his father had given to him, that ordained for him, because of his sovereign care. Do you know what a Christian is? A Christian is not one that endures the difficulty because they love God. A Christian is nothing less than the object of God's gracious, gracious affection and love. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your identity as a Christian primarily is because you are the object of God's affection and love and care and concern? And that's what makes you who you are. Faith, then, is this undistracted pursuit of God, trusting in his loving care along the way. That's what faith is. It is an undistracted pursuit of God, trusting in his loving care along the way. That he knows what we're going through, that he cares for us, that he's experienced these same range of human emotion and trials. And he has the power to see us through it. Why is it such an important thing to do? Why is Jesus always inviting us to get perspective on him? Because I'll put it very simply. You and I cannot live with our eyes fixed on our trouble and have a healthy relationship with God. Two things can't exist at the same time. And so why is, he, why is he telling us these stories? Well, he's inviting us. He is petitioning us. He is inviting us into a deeper relationship with him. Don't put your eyes fixed on your trouble, whatever it is. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who knows you, who cares for you, and is Lord over all. He is inviting you to look beyond your difficulty and to look to Jesus, who is present with you, who cares for you, and whose strength will sustain you. That's what he calls us to. Let's do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the work that you have done for us in Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for being one who, who didn't just look at our cares from a distance. We take your, your very incarnation, your life, your death, we take it for granted when we think that it was something that just happened. And we don't think deeply about what it means about you and about us. That you have personal knowledge of our struggle and difficulty. That when you look upon our need, you don't scoff at us, you do not rebuke us, you do not push us away. You have compassion. That's the kind of Lord that you are. A God of compassion. And you're Lord over all. Who is this person that even the wind and the waves obey? And in knowing you more, that we would worship you. 
that we would believe in you, that we would bow down our lives to you in, humi- in humble dependence and in joy of who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, as we lead into this meal together, this whole sermon has been a preparation for this meal, a preparation to feast on you, to go deeper into our relationship with you and to feast on you deeply, knowing that you sustain us and you comfort us, you satisfy our hearts, all based on the perfect righteousness of Christ and humble sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for this meal that's been prepared for us in Jesus Christ. Pray that it would bring nourishment to our souls, strength to our bodies, and endurance for our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.